Welcome to the Bone and Joint 360 podcast for April 2021, the journal edition. Uh, so today we're going to be speaking to Brett Rockos, who's one of our deputy editors and author of our editorial article this month. And then we're going to pick out some select papers from this month's edition across all of our roundups. I'm here with uh, Brett Rockos, who's our deputy editor at Bone and Joint 360 and the author of our editorial piece in this month's journal. And we're going to briefly discuss uh, the paper Badiwala Ratal published in Lancet Neurology, I think in the February volume from this year. So, uh, Brett, just give us a summary of the the paper and uh, what your thoughts were. Yeah, so this is a great paper. This is uh, a derivation of the NASCIS and STASCIS trials that have, have gone before that started to, to move us towards earlier operating and early decompression in spinal cord injury. And what this paper has done is taken those original data sets and effectively reanalyzed them to look to see if there's a better improvement in neurological function if you operate before 24 hours rather than after 24 hours. And there's some things that make this really quite really quite a potentially practice-changing paper. First is their methodology. They haven't just meta-analyzed the original studies, of which there were four. They've gone back to the source data, to the authors of those studies, pulled it all together in a, in a harmonized manner, done some fairly fancy statistics to impute the missing variables, and then done their analysis. What they've also done is quite a comprehensive um, sensitivity analysis. So they've tested that hypothesis in three or four different ways and come up with the same answer each time. They've taken, it's just over 1,500 eligible patients, about 65% um, complete data, which gives them just over 1,000 patients, which is a huge patient group if you look at the spinal cord injury literature. And effectively, what they've shown is if you operate, that is to say, decompress and or stabilize if you need to before 24 hours, your odds ratio of an improved Asia score at one year is about 1.48. So there's quite a significant chance of improving neurological outcome of a year. That's really and I think it's... Yeah, it's a really clear message. It's a well-written paper. And I think it's, it really is, it's quite a big stick with which to go to our theatre teams, go to our radiology departments, say, look, we need to be doing this now. This is now the model standard of care. They've also picked 24 hours as a cutoff based on sort of historical benchmarks. But the implication, I think, seems to be that bringing that forwards even further may well improve outcomes further. Do, do you think there's going to be a cutoff point at which point you sort of get a good plateau at the shortest end of the spectrum? Yeah, it's hard to know. And, and this study doesn't have enough numbers in the very early phase to, to determine between, let's say, eight and 24 hours. But certainly, I agree there's a hint that the sooner you get to these patients, like we used to with the compartment syndromes, you know, back in the early, in the 10 years ago or so, I think there's going to be a shift towards earlier is, is better. And I think what we'll find is between eight and 12 hours is going to be even better than kind of 24 hours. What we can see from the data here is that after 24 hours, you, you start to see a, a more significant <coughs> decline in neurological function. For 36 hours, really, you're not. There's no benefit to operating then or, or a week later. But if I had to hedge my bets, it would be sooner is better. It's going to take some pretty significant logistical shifts in how we have access to scanning and theatre on the ground, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. I mean, one thing, interestingly, this paper doesn't talk about is the role of MRI scanning in the acute phase and so on, which obviously for our trauma teams who are, you know, have quite a, a well-developed system now and, you know, CTs become absolutely integral to, to early care. That's going to be a change. You know, we've got unstable patients with a lot of equipment attached to them and so on. And leaving them on their own for 40 minutes in the MR scanner is going to be a risk. But I think I know that the group is working on similar work looking at 
the role of MR in the early phase. And I think that's going to be part of the sort of 21st century spinal cord injury care. That's fantastic. So what's uh, your thoughts on the next step in terms of looking into this uh, from a research perspective? There's two, two arms to this. What we need to do is, is know what do we need in order to make the right surgical decision in that very acute phase in cord injury. That might be MR, it, it might be you know, more detailed neurological assessment or something like that. And the second part is, as you say, we've said 24 hours for now. Does eight hours make a difference? Does six hours make a difference? And I think that's the next phase here is to really know when we need to strike with these difficult, uh, difficult to manage patients. So thank you to Brett for that really interesting article. And now we're going to move on to the roundups from this month's journal. So first, starting with hip and pelvis, our first paper from the USA looks at the medial plating for Powell's type 3 femoral neck fractures. These vertical fractures are often seen in younger high-energy trauma patients. Complications in this group are high, with reoperation rates of around 20%, non-union rates of 15%, and avascular necrosis as high as 10%. A PALS 3 configuration increases varus and shear forces. A sliding hip screw construct is probably better than cannulated hip screws as it is angular stable, but adding a cannulated hip screw to a sliding hip screw is better again, probably by reducing shear and rotational forces. This paper asks, is a medial calcar plate a better augment than a fully threaded cannulated screw when used with a 135 degree sliding hip screw? 10 matched cadaveric pairs were tested and found that in almost all cases the medial plate showed improved stability. It doesn't make it any easier to insert the plate in a real patient, however. Our second paper from China is a systematic review and meta-analysis comparing arthroplasty and internal fixation for displaced femoral neck fractures in the elderly. The two options have different risk profiles. 31 randomised control trials were included and arthroplasty and internal fixation didn't seem to have a significant difference at short or long-term follow-up. However, arthroplasty was much less likely to cause complications with a relative risk of 0.3 in the long term and was also associated with lower post-operative pain with a relative risk of 0.5. In addition, a trial sequential analysis indicates that there is more than enough evidence of these findings. Sticking with the theme of hip fractures, our final hip and pelvis paper from South Korea considers the use of dual mobility total hip arthroplasty for patients with femoral neck fractures. The current choice of hemiarthroplasty and conventional total hip replacement presents a difficult trade-off between small gains in function and small increases in complications, particularly that of dislocation. Can the dual mobility design solve this problem? According to this systematic review and meta-analysis of 17 papers with 2,263 hips comparing bipolar hemiarthroplasty and dual mobility designs, the answer is yes, with lower dislocation rates and one-year mortality rates. A word of caution, however, this study included non-randomised control trials, so one has to wonder if the better mortality rates actually reflect a healthier population in the dual mobility group. So on to our knee roundup. Our first paper from the UK looks at the effect of antibiotic-loaded bone cement on the risk of revision following hip and knee arthroplasty. 
Infection in the presence of a joint replacement is a difficult clinical problem for both patient and surgeon, and prevention is certainly better than cure. While antibiotic cement is prevalent in the UK, it is less so across the pond in the USA. This massive meta-analysis includes over 650,000 total knee replacements. There was no significant differences in revision rates for prosthetic joint infection or all causes with or without antibiotics. The study also included over 350,000 total hip replacements and in this case the use of antibiotic cement did reduce the risk of infected revision with a relative risk of 0.66. Our second paper from New Zealand reports on 230 infected total knee arthroplasties in a 15-year multicentre retrospective cohort review. The aim was to establish the success rate of debridement antibiotics and implant retention or DARE. One of the difficulties is that it is often not clear until years later if a cure or a suppression has been achieved. The strength of this paper is in its mean follow-up of 6.9 years with an overall success rate of 53.9%. The results suggest that DARE can be used as an equally successful strategy up to a year following implantation. DARE was successful in 64% of early infections within a year of implantation but only 38% after a year. The presence of Staphylococcus aureus and gram-negative infections were risk factors for failure. Our final paper from Singapore looks at the coronal alignment of unicompartmental knee replacements. It included 264 knees with data on PROMS and survivorship. A tibial coronal angle of 2 to 4 degrees and femoral coronal angle of 0 to 2 degrees conferred 100% 15-year survival versus 92% when prostheses fell outside of these ranges. It is worth noting these data were collected on fixed-bearing cemented unicompartmental knee arthroplasties. So the take-home message is target 2 degrees. Moving on to sports. Our first paper from South Korea looks at the controversial topic of PRP injections in the context of rotator cuff disease. 60 patients with symptomatic cuff disease were randomised to allergenic PRP injection or local anaesthetic and steroid. There was no control group and all patients received concurrent physiotherapy. At six months, no significant differences were found between the groups on PROMS or clinical assessment. Our second paper from Finland looks at arthroscopic subacromial decompression, another thorny subject. 210 patients between the ages of 35 and 65 with symptoms consistent with subacromial impingement for longer than three months were randomised to arthroscopic subacromial decompression or diagnostic arthroscopy and followed up for a minimum of five years. An impressive 83% completed follow-up and no clinically important difference in outcomes was found between the groups. Our final sports paper from the USA asks if ACL reconstruction changes gait biometrics five years after surgery. This only looked at patients with isolated ACL injuries in athletes, 40 of whom were treated operatively and 17 non-operatively. 
Patients treated non-operatively had greater medial compartment contact forces and peak knee adduction moments. While over the time period of this study, this did not result in any radiological differences, it does add weight to the view that over longer periods, knees without reconstruction are at higher risk of post-traumatic arthritis. It also aligns with patient-reported complaints that a knee just doesn't feel right until after reconstruction. Next, foot and ankle. Our first foot and ankle paper from the USA looks at the complication rates and outcomes for first metatarsophalangeal joint arthrodesis for hallux rigidus in patients over the age of 65 compared to younger patients. 143 patients were followed up for three years with 64 patients over the age of 65 included. Both groups of patients benefited equally on patient-reported outcomes and the complication rates were the same in both groups. The results are worth considering when discussing surgical options with patients in this age group. Our next paper, also from the USA, looks at the ever-present problem of the syndesmosis or more accurately, its reduction after trauma. This anatomy paper looked at 213 bilateral CT scans taken for other reasons, such as measurement of lower limb rotational alignment. It is worth noting that all CT scans were taken non-weight bearing, which must be considered in interpreting the results. More than one third of patients had at least one radiological parameter outside of the currently defined normal limits. This therefore raises the question, what truly is normal and can we compare side to side or like for like in decision making in theatre? Our final foot and ankle paper from the UK asks if the anatomical axis of the tibia is good enough to assess the tibiotalar alignment when planning reconstructive procedures of the ankle and hind foot. The study investigated whether coronal tibiotalar alignment using the mechanical axis of the limb would differ from alignment measured using the anatomical axis of the tibia in patients with symptomatic ankle arthritis who were waiting for ankle arthroplasty. 61 weight-bearing long-leg anteroposterior radiographs were used to measure the mechanical axis of the limb, mechanical axis of the tibia, the anatomical axis of the tibia and were compared to a line along the talar articular surface. It shows that tibiotalar alignment should be based on the mechanical axis of the tibia since in a surprisingly high proportion of patients discrepancies may arise affecting long-term outcomes of realignment procedures. This is a good read for those preparing for the FRCS. So moving on to wrist and hand. Our first wrist and hand paper from the USA looks at chronic pain one year after operative management of distal radius fractures. This was a secondary analysis of data produced by the prospective wrist and radius injury surgical trial. The initial trial randomised those over 60 years of age with extra-articular distal radius fractures to closed reduction and percutaneous pinning, external fixation or open reduction and internal fixation. Chronic pain was defined as anything above zero on the pain domain of the Michigan Hand Outcomes Questionnaire, which is scored out of 100. On this metric, pain was present at one year in 59.6% of patients. 
Time to surgery of less than one week and open reduction internal fixation both seem to significantly reduce chronic pain at one year, which is a very interesting finding. However, pain has been dichotomized to present or absent and not quantified, and we do not know how many patients had clinically important pain. Our second paper from the UK looks at venous thromboembolic events in hand surgery. Events were included if they occurred within 90 days of surgery. National data for a two-year period were studied, and an impressive 71,000 trauma cases were included, where no cases of DVT and 1PE were recorded. 260,000 elective cases recorded, 13 DVTs and 26 PEs. No events were recorded in patients with no identified risk factors, and no temporal relationship between those events which did occur and surgery was found. The rate of VTE events following and attributable to hand surgery seems likely to be very small. Our final wrist and hand paper, also from the UK, performs a cost-utility analysis of open A1 pulley release for the treatment of trigger finger. The condition affects 2% of us at some point in our lives. 192 patients were included in the analysis and after failing initial management with steroid injection. On the assumption that the benefit of release was maintained for two years postoperatively, a quali at a quality adjusted life year at two years of £16,154 showed that open trigger finger release was cost effective. Next, shoulder and elbow. Our first paper is from Australia and is a small double-blind randomised control trial of 60 patients undergoing anatomic or reverse total shoulder replacement, assessing blood loss with or without tranexamic acid. Two grams of tranexamic acid were given at induction and all patients received a surgical drain. At 24 hours, the tranexamic acid group had 94 mils of total blood loss, compared to 226 mils for the group who did not receive it. However, no significant difference in secondary outcomes, such as length of stay, post-operative pain, were identified. This is a small study on elective patients and it would be interesting to see a similar study in trauma patients. It seems reasonable, on the basis of this study, to support the use of tranexamic acid for shoulder arthroplasty. Our second study, from the USA, looks at the role of non-operative management of massive irreparable rotator cuff tears. It is a systematic review and meta-analysis of 10 studies, the majority of which were level 4 data. The overall success rate ranged from 32% or 96%, with significant improvements in functional outcome scores, range of movement and strength. The study went on to suggest a treatment protocol for this patient group, including supervised physiotherapy for greater than three months, anti-inflammatory medications and steroid injections. Clearly, the quality of the evidence going into the meta-analysis was not ideal, but this does add to the growing body of evidence that surgery should be reserved for refractory or specific cases. Our final shoulder and elbow paper, also from the USA, seeks to identify an interscalene block regime in patients undergoing arthroscopic rotator cuff repair with a view to reducing postoperative opioid use. 
The design was a three-arm, double-blind, randomised control trial. The control was bupivacaine and dexamethasone, and the two interventions were liposomal bupivacaine plus normal bupivacaine and liposomal bupivacaine and dexamethasone. Liposomal bupivacaine has a longer duration of action. Both intervention groups showed significantly lower post-operative narcotic use. This is a small study, but the findings are important and future research should be directed at a cost analysis. So moving on to spine. Our first spine paper comes from the Netherlands and is a meta-analysis of randomised control trials that investigate the effectiveness of surgery for patients with cervical radiculopathy without myelopathy. 21 randomised control trials with 1,567 patients were included. Clinical outcomes were equivalent among all the studied surgical interventions. Complication and reoperation rates were also similar, with the exception of operations using autologous bone grafts, where higher complication rates were reported. On the basis of this data, there is no evidence to support one surgical intervention over another for this group of patients. Our final spine paper from New Zealand seeks to identify predictors of failure for non-operative management of spinal epidural abscess. Interestingly, the classical triad of symptoms was only seen in 7% of patients. Back pain was present in 65%, 77% had a fever and 43% neurological symptoms. Blood cultures were positive in 76% and the causative organism was Staphylococcus aureus in 58%. Significant predictors of failure of non-operative management were multifocal sepsis, Maori ethnicity and a high white cell count. Overall, 36% would be expected to fail non-operative management. Moving on to our bumper crop of trauma papers. Our first of four trauma papers is from the USA and this informs the difficult clinical decision making for patients presenting with fractures of the greater trochanter. When we see an x-ray of an isolated greater trochanter fracture, most patients will go on to have a subsequent CT or MRI to look for extension. This retrospective series of 17 patients showed that MRI confirmed intertrochanteric extension in all patients. The extension, however, was less than 50% in all but one patient, and none of the patients required operative intervention over the period of follow-up. This is reassuring to those of us considering pursuing a course of non-operative management. Staying with hip fractures, this paper from the UK gives some insight into the outcomes of non-operative management. In overburdened healthcare services stretched to breaking point by COVID, this has been a reality over the last year for some. This meta-analysis of 25 pa papers included 2,615 patients. The reasons for non-operative management were predominantly due to the patient being deemed unfit for surgery and the results must be viewed through this lens. 30-day mortality was 36% and one-year mortality 60%. However, in patients mobilised early, mortality fell to 20% at six months. If non-operative management is a necessity, either due to patient factors or resource deficiency, the interventions which can improve outcomes are adequate analgesia and blocks, 
early mobilisation and prompt discharge from the acute setting. Our next paper from Finland looks at the issue of humeral bracing for closed displaced fractures. It is a small randomised control trial including 82 patients randomised to open reduction in internal fixation or functional bracing with a primary outcome of the DASH score at 12 months. No clinically important difference was found on the DASH score. However, 30% of patients randomised to functional brace crossed over to open reduction in internal fixation, mainly due to delayed or non-union in the period of study. 8% of those randomised to surgery developed a temporary radial nerve palsy. This study doesn't have the power to inform which treatment should be used if the aim is to avoid non-union. Its results are useful in informing discussion with patients when deciding on a treatment plan. Our final paper from the UK looks at the effects of screening for MRSA and common sense staff initiatives to encourage hand washing as a means to reduce surgical site infection in hip fracture patients. A longitudinal cohort study with data interrogated by autoregressive integrated moving average time series analysis reviewed 7,314 patients before MRSA screening and 6,189 after. Screening did reduce MRSA surgical site infection, but hand hygiene initiatives did not. Over the 17 years of the study, the overall surgical site infection rate fell from 2.4% to 1.5%. I think this data emphasises the importance of surveillance and evaluation of infection control as prevention remains better than cure. So next, oncology. Our first oncology paper from the USA asks if we need to follow up or work up incidental long bone cartilage lesions. 73 patients were followed up for a mean duration of 47 months. Ultimately, 15% turned out to have chondrosarcomas, which were identified subsequent to the incidental finding. All chondrosarcoma patients developed pain and aggressive imaging findings. Therefore, the rate of chondrosarcoma in incidentally found lesions, which do not develop aggressive features and remain painless, is very low. Further imaging may only really be needed when new symptoms develop. Our final oncology study from Singapore reviewed every patient nationally who underwent joint preservation surgery for treatment of orthopaedic oncological diseases between 1978 and 2008 for both health and satisfaction. 256 survivors were identified, of whom 162 were available for study. The mean follow-up was 9.1 years. This data found that amputations were equally as satisfactory as arthrodesis and arthroplasty surgery, but that joint salvage was superior to all the other three interventions. So moving on to children's orthopaedics. Our first paediatric paper comes from Ireland and examines the feasibility of day case pelvic osteotomies. 84 consecutive patients were operated on over the study period and 35 met the inclusion criteria for day case surgery. 
For these patients, 70 inpatient bed days were saved, with a cost saving of over €100,000 over the course of the study. A specific intraoperative and postoperative analgesic regime was used, and detailed patient information was given with backup from a nurse-led telephone follow-up. Three patients scheduled for day case treatment remained in hospital, and four patients returned on the second postoperative day due to inadequate pain control. This study does demonstrate the feasibility of day case, or indeed short-stay surgery, for what can be quite major surgery in paediatric patients, and demonstrates the inherent financial benefits of this. Our second paper from the USA looks at the characteristics and reoperation rates of paediatric tarsal coalitions. This paper is unusual in that the focus was on long-term follow-up with a median of 14.4 years. Over a 54-year period, 58 patients with 85 coalitions were identified from a county database. 46 were calcaneonavicular, 30 talocalcaneal, and the remaining 9 were mainly talonavicular. 46 were treated with arthrodesis or resection, and 39 were treated non-operatively. The overall reoperation rate for those treated surgically was 8.7%, with no significant risk factors found. The surgical group did report fewer persistent symptoms at final follow-up, with 33% versus 67% for those treated non-operatively. Our final paediatric paper, also from the USA, asks if post-cast removal x-rays and a second follow-up appointment are necessary when treating non-displaced supracondylar humeral fractures. 489 patients were included in a single-centre eight-year review. All but two patients had routine radiographs after cast removal and no patient had their management changed as a result of this x-ray. After the cast was removed, 290 of these patients returned for a further outpatient appointment, primarily to check that range of movement had returned to normal. 95% of these patients were discharged at this point with no change to management, and the vast majority of the remaining 5% simply had a further follow-up appointment arranged to continue to check progress. While follow-up imaging and appointments may be reassuring, in an increasingly financially pressured time, they look more like a luxury on the basis of this data. A simple well-being call could replace follow-up and likely safely identify the 1 in 20 patients who may need review for stiffness. And finally, our final roundup of this podcast is research. Our first paper from China looks at the performance of promising novel synovial biomarkers for detecting periprosthetic joint infection in the presence of inflammatory joint disease. 50 synovial fluid samples were taken from patients with and without prosthetic joint infection and were compared to 22 samples in patients with active inflammatory joint disease. Bactericidal permeability increasing protein, lactoferrin, neutrophil gelatinase-associated lipocalcin, neutrophil elastase 2 and alpha-defensin were all found to be useful in diagnosing prosthetic joint infection, but all had the potential to be misleading in the presence of inflammatory joint disease. 
For this subgroup of patients, it is likely that higher thresholds are needed for diagnosis, but what those thresholds are remains to be uncovered. Our second paper from China looks at the possibility of an association between type 2 diabetes and osteoarthritis in adults over the age of 50. An analysis of 7,781 patients was carried out, and while a significant positive association was identified, this disappeared once BMI was controlled for. It is possible that there is a complex relationship present, but no causal relationship can be suggested on the basis of this data. And our final research paper from the USA looks at patients in the sixth decade of life with an undisplaced or stable hip fracture. The team retrospectively analysed the Hounsfield unit measurements in 114 patients who underwent surgical fixation of intracapsular femoral neck fractures. The investigators found that the Hinesfield unit measurements of the femoral head were significantly associated with screw penetration and femoral neck shortening, but not revision surgery. CT scan Hinesfield unit measurements in the femoral head and neck may therefore be useful in deciding whether to treat a non-displaced femoral neck fracture with internal fixation or arthroplasty. I hope you've enjoyed this month's podcasts. Have a look at the full journal to read our roundups or many more interesting papers and to get the references for the papers we've discussed today. I look forward to seeing you for our next podcast later this month.